inspiration, enlightenment, and insight on how to get what you want and how to keep it. We could have been anything that we wanted to be. And it's not too late to change it. We'd be delighted to give it some thought. Maybe you'll agree that we really ought to. And now, here are your hosts. Paul Williams and Tracy Jackson. Good morning, Paul Williams. Good morning, Tracy. Good afternoon. We don't actually. What we don't know when this is. When is this? This is in digital. This is digital. It could t- be any time. This is digital time. Digital weather. You know, it can be. So what, somebody could listen to this in Japan, and it's tomorrow. Exactly. Somebody like tomorrow, a month from now. I mean, it could be anything. It could be. Yeah. Nighttime. It yeah. could be you could be in an airplane. You yeah. could be like in a no zone. You this could, is the kind of conversation. This is the kind of ship. this is the kind of conversations that I had when I was drinking and using that had me taking notes. And then I would find them when I was sober and go, you know, you are so lucky to be alive and not institutionalized. I thought that was a very clear, clear, cogent <laughs> conversation about time travel. Exactly. And exactly. when and when we don't know who's listening and where they are, what Did, they're doing. What are you guys doing out there? Hi guys who are listening what are you doing yeah tweet, and where are you tweet into us you know we never tell people to tweet to us tweet to us let us know what you're hearing what you're thinking uh, tracy is at tracy jackson four i know I, I got in late to twitter four you know i couldn't have been me i could have been me t-r-a-c-e-y jackson four and, and you are I am Paul Williams. At I, the letter I, the letter M. Not I am, the letter I, the letter M. I got in too late for I am. The letter I, the letter M, Paul Williams. Exactly. We also have at Gratitude Trust. We had to leave the and out. We couldn't afford the and. At Gratitude Trust. But write us and let and us know what you're website. thinking. we have our website. We never talk. We have our, act, we have our website, which is gratitudeandtrust.com, yeah. where we have a lot of cool stuff going on. We have a lot of little places where you live. We have, we have Pinterest, which... We pin. You don't. You don't even know about uh, yeah, that. You don't even know. You've never know, seen our Pinterest. Have you ever seen our Pinterest? You know, I, I put a bunch of stuff up on Facebook, though, last night. I, of Did course, all I of it, I, p- I pilfered all of it out of your Facebook page and just reposted <laughs> like crazy. But the fact is, I'm enthusiastic about this. I'm enthusiastic about what we're doing. I love the response from people. I love, you know, we're walking down the street in New York, and, and a guy stops us and goes, oh, my God, I'm listening to your podcast right now, which is was crazy making. He actually wasn't listening to this podcast, I hate to tell you. He was listening to us on Randy oh. Cohen's person place thing. We got to give credit where credit's due. Oh, oh, oh no, he was listening to us on Gilbert. Gilbert. No, no, it was Randy Cohen. Was Randy? Person. Yeah. See how fascinating is this to listen to us argue about what? There's so we... many places we've been on on this. Yeah, no. But now you could be listening to us on Gilbert, but he was listening to Randy Cohen. We he need was, to get Gilbert he here. Was a little. We do need to get Gilbert here. When I leave here today, I'll go home and I will email. Yeah. We'll get Gilbert. Gilbert Gottfried is Gottfried is just, is so funny and knows more about. The history of of comedy and the entertainment world and old his, movies, you know, old movie Roddy book. McDowell was probably the most amazing of all the people I ever met. As far as knowing about film, he was a walking, living film encyclopedia. Those of you under the age of eighty nine, <laughs> Roddy McDowell was. Roddy McDowell was a great actor. Was he in Planet uh, of the Apes? He was. He played. Uh, he played uh, the the lead chimpanzee. You know. Uh, he did. He did. Which not... Planet of the Apes were you? Because the other night I was there, I was watching something, and a clip. Oh, I don't even remember what I was watching now, and a clip from Planet. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. You know, catching up on Mad Men since that's all I do is try and get through every season of Mad Men, and there was a clip from Planet of the Apes. It was Mad Men, and 
Glenn said, there's Polly. Now, I think Polly thinks all the apes are you for some reason, only because you've seen your ape picture. So yeah. we don't know which one you're in. Oh, but it's so funny. I, I, I was in Battle for the Planet of the and Apes. And when did that the, come in the series? That was the last of the series. And the great memory that I have of that is that John Huston, the legendary director and actor John Huston, came onto the set to, to play the lawgiver in this opening scene with a huge number of extras and all. There were like 50 orangutans and, and 80 chimpanzees and 200 gorillas or something but so John John Houston is walking on the set and I had gone by when I before makeup and said you know I'd love to have a drink it was like six in the morning I'm going would you like to have a drink and he said oh no Paul not right now but perhaps later so anyway I'm out on the set with and I'm standing in front of about 40 orangutans and John Houston has walked onto the set and as he walks by the 40 orangutans as he passes me he says hello Paul now I went wait a minute what are you saying? I mean, like, I'm in full orangutan makeup. Do I still look like myself in 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 orangutan makeup? And in some sense, I think I do. I think I was also the littlest orangutan, which is probably why he recognized me. And this is totally boring to you because you're looking at your notes while I'm talking. It's like you're just. You I was should, listening. You were the littlest orangutan. You know, I mean, it's, it's like she's gone away. It's just. Why did you know, I've gone away? Didn't you write a song like that? She's gone away. Gone. Yeah. You, you, good news is I'm better for the time we spent together. Well, the bad of, news is you're gone. Well, I wasn't gone. I was here. What I was doing is I was thinking how how amusing that we're talking about the Planet of the Apes before we introduce our next guest. <laughs> it's a bit because, of a leap, isn't well, it? I don't know. Well, she, she she's not a science fiction writer. She's very clear about that. But she is really one of the high priestesses of of letters. I mean, she's she's a national treasure in Canada. She's won the Booker Prize. She's written 15 novels. She's written eight books of short fiction. She's written eight children's books. She's written 17 books of poetry. She well, has I think a the I think the connection connection coming you... out today and the heart goes last and she is She's so smart, and I, I, I'm usually not nervous about interviewing people, but this woman is really, really... Her brain operates on so many She's cylinders. Very, and, and, and environmentalist as well. Devout environmentalist. I mean, to, just... An extraordinary human being. Why are you raising your hand? Because you, the You're thing, not I, I'm, a, I'm, about, not I'm about to illustrate to you yes, that. Yes, Paul, you may speak. Thank you, God. <sighs> oh, my God. Sometimes. The fact is what? that the connection to science fiction is that she gives pays great homage to Jules Verne, to, uh, you know, to uh, 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 1984, or- Orwell, George, George Orwell. Orwell. Yeah, exactly. Had to peek around for that name up in the, in the car, filing <laughs> cards. But yes, yeah, she's a remarkable woman, and she's your friend. She's she's a friend, and she's so you're, a, and you're nervous about talking to her. Well, I just I you know we I I nervous I don't know I just you know you don't want to blow it you don't want to blow it but she's but she's so easy to talk to she's so funny she's huge it's really she's giant on Twitter she's just she loves it she loves the internet loves she social loves media social media yeah. and so so we're gonna get to have a lovely chat and um, Margaret Atwood is coming up yay. Welcome, Margaret Atwood. Thank you for joining us on Gratitude and Trust today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be there. And you are, you're, you're in sunny or cold Toronto? Where are I you? I am in Toronto, and you never know what it's going to be. And today, Margaret... But, but, it, but it's not dry anyway. It's not dry? Dry it isn't. No, oh. not dry. No. 
Right, Margaret, I want to just jump on to say hi, it's Paul Williams, and I want to start, since you mentioned cold and snow and all, you, the, the best quote ever in my history of quotes about snow is, the Eskimos had 52 names for snow because it was important to them. There ought to be as many for love. One of my favorite quotes ever, and that's yours. Well, uh, I was probably quoting somebody else, um, but adding on to it. You know how these quotes go, round and round. <laughs> you know, it is amazing online when you start reading quotes, and they will attribute one quote, they will attribute it to Gandhi, Marilyn Monroe, and Genghis Khan. It's really, you, you, you cannot trust anything in those quotes. But today, Mark... Well, well they, they quoted one another, right? They did, I guess, do you think? Do you think Genghis, Marilyn Monroe quoted Genghis Khan? I like the idea of that. I, I, think, I think it was the other way around. You do? <laughs> time travel involved, and we will never do time yeah. travel. That's another quote of Margaret Atwood. <laughs> is today's a big so, day, or is it, Margaret? When you've had so many books come out, today, your 15th novel, The Heart Goes Last, comes out for sale all over the world. Um, is, is that a big day when you've written as many books, or is it just kind of, oh, hum, another day, another novel? No no day is ever ho-hum, Tracy. Okay, well, that's you a know, good uh, That's true. Publication or not. Uh, and I know that you never greet the day with a ho-hum. No, you're right. But so I was just being glib. It's not a ho-hum, no. You were being... <laughs> yes, it's always a thrill, and particularly it's a thrill when it has a cover on that you like. This is a wonderful and cover. This, I love this cover. Now, why do you love this cover? I mean, it's a beautiful uh, well, cover, but it's hard to describe because we're audio. But what, what is it about this cover you, that makes you happier you, than others? Well, you haven't seen the others. Or maybe well, I have. No, I've seen a lot of your covers. <laughs> I think she's seen them all, Margaret. I've seen a lot of your covers. I'm staring at yeah. four right now. But what is it about this that yeah. really makes you so most happy? Most of them are pretty good. They I are. have to say most of them. But this one, first of all, it's very bright. It's got two of my favorite colors in it. And uh, it has a little touch that I put in myself, which was in the first iteration of it, neither Stan nor Charmaine was smiling. And I said, make her smiling and him not. Don't you think it looks more enigmatic that way? You know, it's so interesting because the way it is, I hadn't noticed that until now because it's at the very tip top. It's hard It's to explain to all of you because we are a, an audio format here. It's, an, yes. it's a blue, how would you describe it, Margaret? You describe it. Blue background, man and a woman uh, standing facing front holding hands uh, just up to the tops of their nose, just up to their noses and a little above. So you see their mouths but not the eyes. And he is not smiling, and she is smiling. And they are wearing orange outfits, and across the middle are three, or is it four? Three or four. Count them. It's three five, it's five actually. It's five. Five, five, five bars, yeah. White bars yeah. that look, when you look at it from a distance, it makes it really light up. And it looks fluorescent. And then when you see that they're wearing the orange kind of prison color over their regular clothing. Yeah. I just, you know, I never know. See, look what you did. I didn't realize how much information about the book, we're not going to do a spoiler alert, is in this cover. Well, they paid attention, didn't they? They really did, didn't I they? Yeah, I think it's very nice when they do. Because that kind of tells part of the story. Yes. So sometimes you have to bait them off because they want to put flowers on. This is not a book uh, for flowers, is it? This is not a flowery type of book. 
How would you describe um, this book? Because now, you, Margaret would, Atwood of Dystopia, um, would you say this is another dis- book that takes place in a dystopic environment? Well, yes and no. Uh, parts of it are, and parts of it aren't, and parts of it are Las Vegas. What would you call that? Oh, I would call that totally a dystopic environment. Oh, uh, would you? But other people really enjoy it. They go there on purpose. They do. So and, you know, for me, it's, it's hell on earth. But I, I understand that. But I've always hated Vegas. That, yes. That's a really interesting question. What, and do you like it? Yes. <laughs> really? Margaret Atwood likes Vegas. Like There's the, that's the well, bumper sticker know, for the too. conversation so far. I cannot believe that. I find it a place so devoid of real joy. People are trying so hard to have a... What is it you love about it? Everything in it is fake. <laughs> that lovely. And, and that takes talent. You know, yeah. that really takes talent. Yeah. That's the so part I'm not that... looking at it from the point of view of the people uh, going there and have a good time. I'm, I'm looking at, at it from the point of view of the people performing in it and creating it. Did so you look... when I was there, I'd, I talked to a number of the people who dress up as other people such as Minnie Mouse and Captain Jack and uh, Angry Birds and things. Um, And there they are, all dressed up as somebody else. And uh, they're part of the whole creation of non-reality. Must be an interesting thing to sit inside an Angry Bird costume and watch the world go by. I I would think it would be a great place to keep a memoir about life going by around you. I think it would be extremely warm in there. (laughs) (laughs) And you could be angry and be a bird. Do you think, it's so interesting to me to hear you say that, it takes me in a totally new direction, but do you think, because a lot of your, some of your books, and, and this one included, there's a prison aspect and a, you know, in terms of metaphors and in reality, do you find that people who go to Vegas are in a kind of prison? No. You don't? They, they're going there, well, if they get trapped in it, yes. A, a, a cage is anything you can't get out of. Um, so a prison is a cage that other people put you in on purpose. Ah, that's well. Uh, it would so take the, Margaret Atwood to make that distinction. So, that's quite wonderful. Yes, but so do you think? You but do you think be, they go there and then they're in a cage, the cage of wanting to make no, money? No, because they can, they can get out. But but if they go there and uh, aren't meeting their rent and get trapped in it, then 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 you could say that. But but that could be any place. Could it not? I don't know, because when I go to Vegas, this is my memory of going to both Vegas and and Atlantic City. And I'm not a gambler. I had a grandmother who loved to gamble. And whenever we couldn't find her, we would, oh, go, she must be in Vegas. My memory of Vegas is you wake, you go to bed late at night, and there's some poor person sitting at a slot machine, smoking, sometimes on a ventilator or something. And they're, they're down to like their, their last paycheck or they're using their social security check. And then you wake up in the morning and you're on your way to breakfast. They're sitting in the same chair. There's something yeah, about that yeah, that, that is that, so that's, heartbreaking that's awful, to me. And that's a prison of wanting of, of something to me, of an addiction. Yeah, well, that, that's a self, yeah, that's, a, that's an addiction. There uh, isn't, so there's, any addiction, any addiction you can't quit when you want to is a prison, of course. But, but a lot of Vegas now isn't gambling; it's shows. So I think it's. I'm thinking. I'm. I'm looking at it more like a carnival, rather than a horrible gambling hell. How often do you go there, Margaret Atwood? Well, I've only been there once, 
but I took a lot in while I was there. <laughs> <laughs> There's another, really there, there is a cage side of it for the entertainer there. I will tell you that for somebody, because in the old days, you know, you'd, I would go and perform in Vegas for like a month without a night off, two shows a night. Yes. And somewhere in the middle of that, you, you begin to lose track of what you've done within the show. You begin to lose tr- connectedness to the audience, and you begin to roll into a kind of an autopilot that is a self-built cage. You're there because your career, this is, this is what you want. This is a chance to, to get the paycheck. But at a certain point, especially looking back, looking back now in sobriety, as opposed to being in the middle of it, loaded out of my brains, I would have thought, oh, my God, that was a self-made cage. It was, but you chose it. I did, absolutely, you know. He's and they tell me I had a good time once in a while as well. He signed that contract. <laughs> but that, well, that was, that's a money thing, too. See, what I see in Vegas, I guess, is it feels almost like and I'm not a big New Year's Eve person. Do you like New Year's Eve, Margaret? Um, I've never been a great New Year's Eve person. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect See, I hate fake revelry, forced revelry, and Vegas TV. Yeah, but I think it's very interesting to watch. The writer observer. The writer observer. Yeah, I, I, it is. I think it's, it's like many things. It's interesting and depressing, which is something that you do in your books as well, don't you? You have, you, you, you find. Now, Tracy, how could you say that? Well, there are some, there's <laughs> some. Interesting and depressing. No, no but... I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's depressing at all because there you are reading away and what are you thinking? You're thinking, well, at least my life isn't that bad. And you find that actually quite elating, don't you? Well, the way you do it, of course, but there is something, <laughs> of course, you do have these environments and, and, and the new book has it where there are these worlds that are a little bit scary. Okay, so let's just set it for people a bit. So Stan and Charmaine have lost their... You said it, yes. You said it Yeah, Stan and Charmaine have lost their house because there has been a financial meltdown whisper who dare. Uh, It's a little... Could it it resemble at all 2008 when a lot of people lost their houses, particularly in the Rust Belt? Uh, So there they are. They've lost their house. Their places of employment have closed down. They're out on the street, and they're living in their car. And they get a chance. They're they're living on on the street, uh, on streets roamed by lawless gangs of thugs who want their cars, and they have to keep moving. And they don't have enough money to get out of town because they can't afford the gas. Um, So they see on TV a possibility of going into a plan where they would get their own house, they would get uh, their own bath towels. It's all very nice. And there's only one catch, which is if you sign on to this thing, you can't get out. You have to show that you're serious by making a real commitment. And once inside this plan, you spend uh, half of the time in this nice house, which is a timeshare, because the other half of the time you spend in the prison, which is the main business run by the town. So half the time you're a guard or a citizen, and the rest of the time you're a prisoner, which means that the food is much better than in a real prison, because if somebody serves you up bad food one month, you're going to do the same to them the next, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> See, I'm glad you're so telling this, because I didn't want to spoiler a, alert your book, so that's why I didn't want to ask. Go oh, ahead. That, that's not a spoiler alert. That's just a setup. We're okay. not going to tell what happens to Stan and Charmaine once they get in there. Okay. So they're sharing their house with their alternates, 
whom they're not supposed to know or ever meet because you wouldn't want to know who's actually sharing your house if they happen to be a prisoner that you're taking care of. You'd start arguing about uh, who didn't do the laundry properly and things. Um, so, so that's uh, where they find themselves, and then we find out what happens to them next and what the uh, for-profit aspect of the prison really is. Mm. And but pa- eventually we get to eventually we get to Vegas. You do get to Vegas, and, and, and they are real people doing real people things in this in this in this alternative kind of world, which is something that you use in many of your books to the point that. Some people call you a science fiction writer, but you dispute that. Okay, what do you think of when you think of science fiction? Well, you think of, like, Star Wars, and you think of people in outer space, yes. and you think of, like, people, yes. you know, weird taser guns that turn you into yes. goofy animals that can then have superpowers. Yes. Right, like that. Okay. Yes, right, like that. You, st- you think of skin-tight black <laughs> leather... Excuse me, skin-tight black rubber clothing. But I think of Vegas when you <laughs> say that, Margaret. If, if, if I could jump in here and, and participate clothing. in this, because I think I have something to say that is appropriate about this. I think we're about the same age, <laughs> Margaret. And in my late teens and in my early 20s, I, I fell in love with Richard Matheson and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov. And I, I think these were writers that perhaps you know were kind of at the headwaters of your fascination with the, the, the with this, that oh, genre. Right. And I loved your right, comment right, on Bradley, another that I yeah. heard another the comment you made that that talked about erasing the genres that that the the, the first people writing what we would identify as science fiction they were not writing science fiction that 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 you know Frankenstein was not written as a horror novel that that uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde was not written as as a uh, uh, a horror another uh, horror novel yeah, exactly yeah. You know, another horror novel you know and you see that's why you're a better writer than I am because I I, I just couldn't find the another genre another example but I think you talk about the first example of a Western novel is uh, is uh, it's Owen Wester's The Virginian. The Virginian, exactly. You know, but I, I yeah. think that I, I, I was wondering if, if you had the same affection for, for example, Matheson as I did. Um, I was a rape. I think I might be a bit older than you. Mm, I'm 75 so, this this mm, year. I'm a little older than you. Oh, I thought we were but not much. So, no. so maybe, maybe so a Ray, year. Maybe a year. I'm thinking. Yeah, Ray Bradbury. Uh, and um, George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and a book that wasn't science fiction but was very much part of that same Orwellian thing, which was called Darkness at Noon. Mm. And it was an account of being in prison under the Russian, under the Stalinist purges of the 1930s. So I read all those when I was an early teenager. Um, Childhood's End? Did you... Uh, well, that that was a little past. So, okay, so nineteen uh, the nineteen fifties. I spent the first uh, six of those years in in uh, public school and high school. But then I was in college. So once I was in college, I was uh, I wasn't so much in that world. Uh, and I don't think I got to that. I I knew about it later. I was also reading John Wyndham. Do you remember him? No, I don't. Day of the Church. Day of the Triffids, ring a bell. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Triffids, giant cabbages, they eat you. Uh, so you always, loved, so like you always love those things. 
Well, I kind of always loved them, but I, I also read, I read ceaselessly just about everything, so I was a big Sherlock Holmes fan at one point, and um, ghost stories and all of those kinds of things. But the reason I say I don't write science fiction proper is that it is not Star Wars. It is much more like uh, 1984. We've got all the tools, things like that have really happened. I don't put stuff in that doesn't have a model in in real life uh, of people actually doing it. Mm. You say something in this book, which something, and it appears in other things of yours, and it's something that I think you do feel. You say there are eyes embedded everywhere. Yeah. Which jumped out. And there are. And there are. And I mean, even more so today. I mean, do you find, I mean, how could one not, but your take on it, even more so today than... 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it just... Yeah, for sure. It's been facilitated by the Internet, and somebody may be watching you through that little camera on your computer, even as we speak. So, yes, indeed it is true. Uh, And we don't even know. You don't even know. Most of it is uh, commercial. In in our world, most of it is commercial, but in, in other countries, most of it is political. And if you go online and look up something called the Citizen Lab, the Citizen Lab, uh, you will find that it is a group of people dedicated to telling you who's been spying on whom um, through the internet. There's either and who's been trying, who's been trying to block you from using it. All of those things. I think if we only knew the third of what went on in that internet with. Even with all of us, and my mother, my mother is terrified of going and doing her banking online. I said, "It doesn't matter, Mom. Everyone has everything they want anyway." You, every, I mean, all these uh, hackings of the last. Not quite. Yeah, not quite. It is actually. Uh, she has some cause for alarm, but um, but they are building in safeguards all the time. But as somebody explained it to me, it's it's like uh, castles and besiegers. So there are people who have the castles, they've got the gates, they've got the keys to the gates, but there are a lot of other people outside trying to get in. But what do you and they're ceaselessly trying to get in. I what do you think of this whole Ashley Madison thing that's just happened? I mean, this is very far off from what you well, read about. But it's... Well, what's, what's the matter with them? Why did they have to go on a website? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why couldn't they just have adultery the old-fashioned Cheever way next drive door? Drive down to Sunset Boulevard, up? the east end of the boulevard. And <laughs> they could have gone to Vegas. <laughs> I think yeah, that, I think that just... one of the elements of, one of the elements of, of, uh, of that you know, invites us into danger is the word convenience. I think when something is convenient, we slide into it very quickly and very easily we jump online and we give them our information and dive into life online and it's easier and 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 in the process somebody like google winds up with immense amounts of information about who we are what we care for and the like Uh, that is very true but but also i think a lot of people on that site were just basically curious i don't think they were planning to have an adultery any old time in the immediate future. I think they were just sort of lurking and cruising. 32 million out of 32 million. So even if, let's say, just a third works. I just still think the invasion of pride, I do think that the invasion of privacy, that whether you want to go online and have an affair or not, it's none of my business. That's that's the way I look at it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You think? Why? Make Make it your business. Well, 
it's if it's not my business. You could, I, you could get them onto your podcast. If I could get them, if I could get <laughs> Ashley Madison ah. on this podcast, I totally I, I would go in. No, but I do feel that there is there are ways that we should have privacy. I do feel I do I am a believer in a certain kind of privacy, and I do think that a lot of our privacy now is well. You say it, eyes are embedded everywhere. I mean, it's it, it is. No, Tracy. Why did God make shower curtains? Just think about that. That's true, but we have doors. Now we have no doors to our houses. You see, our houses are our computers, and anybody can walk in there. Margaret, you predicted Don't all take this. The computer. Don't take the computer into your shower with you, Tracy. Okay, Margaret, I won't. How did you know I was doing that? Now, can I direct a question back to your childhood? And it's something I found, you know, for me, if I find something that I have in common with somebody that has had the kind of amazing success you have, I have to immediately go... Oh, my God, I have to ask about this. Now, growing up, and I heard this in, a, in an interview, you were afraid of the... You, you talked about living in the wilderness and having no great, great respect for bears, but no real fear of them, but you were afraid of the vacuum cleaners and toilet, and you explained that that's because things disappear there. Okay, my side they of did. it is, I've never met anybody that shared this, but I was terrified of the garbage truck. And my mother took me as a little so boy well out. might be. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> took me out there and tried to introduced me to the man in the garbage truck and I'm screaming no she's going to get rid of me she's going to get rid of me when I was 13 years old <laughs> my mother shipped me off to live with an aunt and uncle so there was I'm wondering if there was a bit of precognition there and I, I it wonder. made me want to ask you about that about you in your life what, do you th- do you believe that there is an element of precognition in in uh, in, in these events in your childhood uh, I, I just well, love I, I love that we had that in common <laughs> Yes, well, it's not quite the same. I, I think mine was connected with knowing where everything was. But with a toilet and a vacuum cleaner, things disappear from your uh, your ability to know where they are. They just they just vanish. Mm-hmm. So where did they go? <laughs> they that went into outer space. Small child. Uh, well, it, it was not known where they went. Yeah. So uh, beam me up, Scotty. You know, it's it's worrying. Yeah. <laughs> So this, so this whole disappearing, where we go, who's there, what's behind the curtain has always been what's in the vacuum cleaner from an early age. Uh, I think qu- quite a bit more what's in the toilet. What's in the toilet? Um, I knew. I, yeah, I did figure out that you could open up the vacuum cleaner and your marble would be in there. But you didn't really want to open the toilet. Oh, <laughs> you could. Well, you couldn't. It was, it was, you know, a flush toilet. It's gone, Tracy. Yeah, but right, gone. Okay. It is gone. It is gone. Vanished. Yes, I once had a watch go down. I do remember that. A watch just did dis- you? Yeah, it just slipped off my wrist, and there it went. Nor was I never down. to see that again. I, I want to talk to you. If we could talk, your characters. What I. Lo- What's so interesting in, in your books, your characters find themselves oftentimes in what could be considered hopeless situations or situations where they're in, not, either prisoners or being controlled by other people. Sometimes they put themselves there, sometimes they're put there. But they always, you always continue back to a theme that there is hope, and, and there's a quote even in your book, that you make your own reality out of your attitude. So your well, your belief in the human spirit is 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 really positive. You're an optimist in a pessimist body. You're a pessimist in an optimist body. How does that work with you? Uh, I think hope is built in, uh, and people who don't have it have a marked tendency not to get up in the morning. So I think our our ancestors, generation by generation, those who had hope and got up in the morning, were much more likely to to leave offspring than those who didn't. Wouldn't you say? 
So I think it just it comes with the package for most people that if you're in a bad situation, rather than just sitting down in despair, you will try to do something about it most of the time. There are some things you can't do anything about. No matter what your attitude is, you are stuck. Uh, and that is it. I mean, you just can't. Um, but if you think there's any possibility, you most likely will try. Acceptance. And I think most most people are like that. Most people will try. Do you think yes, that? Do you yes, think? They will. Do you think that when and you talk about a time when when people had to get out of bed or people did get out of bed. Do you think when you went when if one goes travels back in time and not forward in time, yeah. when people had to get out of bed to survive, which we still do to a degree. Well, you have and, to get out of bed to to go hunting and gather exactly. and eat something. You have to get out of bed because otherwise you're just not going to make it. You know, you can't you, you can't postmate your your meal to the house or, you know, order your food online or your lover nope. online or anything else. Do you think in this age and I, and you're a big internet person. Uh, do you think in this age where everything is easier and and everything is you don't have to get out and do it as much that that leads to a kind of depressive state that perhaps more people find themselves in? I, I think if that's all you did, you probably would get very depressed because I, I think that part of us is that we do need human interaction, either with uh, real-life people or with um, voices such as yourself. So uh, if all you're doing is, is, um, is online and nothing else, I think you'd probably get into a pretty depressive headspace, but that might be a symptom. You might have been depressed anyway, and that would be the symptom of you being depressed. Do you think our but forebears had it easier? Is, uh, in, what, what, in what respect? Well, in the respect that they, it, you really, you, you didn't have the luxury. It's, you even find this in third world countries to a degree. You don't have the luxury of a type of depression. You don't have the luxury of being upset because you don't have what you want. I mean, you know, and your characters in the new book, they they make a deal to get things that they need, some for survival, some because they want them. But do you think that we we put ourselves, that this society puts people in that position more than, uh, let's say, years and years ago? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't think depression is a luxury. Um, no, I don't. Depression is <laughs> it's oh, a, bumper it's a sticker. Cl- a bumper clinical sticker. De- <laughs> oh God, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, it's a. Um, it's a very serious illness. Oh no, I mean but real depression. Just, yeah, no, I don't mean real. No, yeah. I, I think real depression is a, is a serious illness, and people should seek help. No, I think a, a kind of ennui that exists um, that perhaps. Oh, you mean you're bored? A certain okay, boredom. Okay. Let, let, yeah. Let's use bored. Let's use bored. Bored is good. Uh, so I don't think they had the luxury of being bored, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, there's always trade-offs. So they, the the uh, um, life expectancy was a lot less. I love that the so, lu- the luxury of being yeah, bored. Think about it, because if. Out of that boredom, somewhere in the midst of that is a place where you begin to deal with what's really going on in the center of your chest, perhaps, or you become creative. And, you know, I, yeah, I, you I love my that. man cave. You know, Tracy makes fun of me because I, I love to retreat and just be alone. It's... Uh, yeah, but, but you're not bored in there. No. Well, I think people who have active no. internal lives are never bored, but I think that I see it with kids, Margaret, and I see it... When when certain what, people, how old is the kid? Well, I've, I've seen it with my kids how over old? the years. Well, they don't do it as much now because they're older. But I think, and I, but you see it also with people when people have more choices 
oftentimes they do get bored. I, I remember, you know, I remember my kids coming in the room and saying, oh, we're so bored, we have nothing to do. And you look around and you see rooms of toys, 900 TV channels, you know, so much at their disposal that the ability to live in one's mind and to create and to, I mean, I just, I had such a rich internal life as a kid, I never did get bored. I was always able to amuse myself. I have a feeling that you were the safe type of child. Is that correct? Are we going to turn into those adults who are going to say to the kids, we made our own fun? Well, I think we did. I do. I Yeah, Margaret. I'll say I think we had an ability to make our own fun. Are we going to assume we're going to turn into adults? I never signed yeah. on for that. I never no. signed on for I that. I mean, I think kids, I think there, there it was much, yeah, it was a simpler time. No, but I... My guess is Margaret, well, young Margaret Atwood. Look, okay, Tracy, Tracy, slow down. Take a breath. Um, <laughs> You're the second person to tell me that. <laughs> Everything looks, looking back, our childhoods always seem simpler because we were not dealing with the central problems that adults were dealing with, namely paying the bills, what to have for dinner. It, it seems simpler to us because we didn't have to do those things. Did we? No. Well, no. No. But kids don't have no. to do that today. And and probably looking back, they'll say, oh, things were so simple in 2015. It was a much simpler time. Uh, we made our own fun. They'll probably be saying that. You actually have no idea what they're up to in the cellar, by the way. Well, they're usually they not in the cellar. They may be telling you that they're bored. But they're usually well, online. Or they I, may be. Well, I think... You have no idea what they're doing online. <laughs> well, no, and that I agree with you, but I also think online that there is so much stimulation now that it's much harder yeah. for them to look inwards. That It's a theory well, I, I have. I could probably, be wrong. Are, are you going to solve that problem for them? No, I'm not. I'm just bringing it up for discussion no, with you because I think I'm you yeah, know, wondering if yeah, you thought yeah. about that. One of the things I catch myself. Uh, no, I, catch I don't my, think a lot about it. Go on. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Margaret. I uh, don't think a lot about it because I think that they will figure that out for themselves sooner or later or else they won't. But but since I have no control over them, that is not what I worry too much about. What do, what do you worry about now? What do I worry about? Where shall we start? <laughs> I know you do worry, so I would love to know what you worry I'm, I'm about. I'm very worried about. I'm worried about California right now. About the drought? Uh, yes. Aren't you worried about that? I'm very worried about it because I grew up here I and I go here. home to my uh, to Santa Barbara, which is a very beautiful green place, which it is now is. A, a very yes. brown place. I'll tell you what else I worry about terribly oh, because no. I grew up. I grew up in in the land of fires is I worry about fire season oh, this yeah. year without enough water to, yes. to, uh, to fight those fires. I worry about what's happening. Well, you're very environmentally conscious. One of the things I worry about, I got straight from Margaret Atwood and that is it was realizing that 80% of our oxygen comes from the area around, uh, around the North pole around, and around Alaska. And you get up into, you get into the area in, in the oceans, you know, the, uh, the marine the, algae. Is it, the marine life, the algae, yeah. or whatever that creates the atmosphere, yep. is yep. 80%. Imagine that gone, and you're trying to gulp down 20% of what you're living on now. So oh, that's, no, we would, then we would all be very stupid in a, in a trice if that happened. Yeah. Uh, so it would be like being up at the top of Himalaya without an oxygen mask. Yeah. Wow. So outside brain of California, goes down. Yeah. outside of California, <laughs> in the drought, what are you worrying about? 
Oh, outside of that, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a, a symptom of the things I generally worry about, and and um, I think it's going to have to be something that people will have to solve pretty quickly, or else we will uh, not survive as a species. Plants will be okay, but we will not. And jellyfish, they say, are the cockroaches of the sea. That and the interesting sign right now that the jellyfish population is growing exponentially. It's immense. I have friends that I've just spent some time with from Hilton Head, and they said that it's bizarre. You look out at the, across the waters, and it's just there's it's it's a sea of these blobbing creatures. Uh, I know. And it's symptomatic of what's going on in the sea. Well, of course. Uh Sea turtles are big eaters of jellyfish. Oh, that's good. So, Unless so, you're a jellyfish. Well, you, know. you have to help bring back the population of sea turtles if you're going to do anything about the jellyfish. And the other thing you're going to have to do quite soon is, is uh, stop the slaughter of sharks because they are the alpha predators of the oceans. And if you eliminate them, next in line comes in, which are manta rays, and, or I'm sorry, the ray family, and the ray family then eats smaller fish, and then you're not going to have oh, the kinds of fish that you want to have, and then you're going to get lots and lots of jellyfish. Is that shark fin thing still going on? I mean, it's just that's so barbaric to think of that. Is that, is that still a... I, I think they've made some reduction, but oh, they're going to have to do better. Yeah. Horrific. I was worried about the drought, and now you've got me worried about jellyfish. <laughs> I was Tell happier just we'll being take... worried about the drought. But you live a very green life. I th- no, I don't. You do, uh, it's, it's almost impossible for, for anyone. I mean, it, it is really very difficult to live a very, very green life. Well, Tracy said something earlier about the way she travels compared to the way you travel. What is the difference there, Tracy? What were well, you speaking of? Well, Margaret, talk about your, your carbon neutral okay. credits. Because I, when I read that, I'd never yeah. heard about that, and I felt stupid, but I want you to oh, talk about off, it. Uh, offsetting. Yeah. Okay, so there are some things that take more out of the... Uh, more carbon out of the air than than you're putting in, and that's what you actually want to do. Plant a tree. And there are now, well, not just plant a tree, plant a tree where or regenerate what. So the fastest, quickest way of uh, sucking CO2 out of the air is to regenerate degraded tropical rain, tropical forests and rainforests, and there are people working on that. And there are also a number of new texts coming online uh, that are carbon carbonivores, so they are carbon eaters. And there's one, for instance, called uh, I don't know. You can find the list on on a website called Medium slash Matter, where I did a piece on on energy and oil called the Everything Change. And I also posted a list of of twelve of these things that take carbon out of the atmosphere. But for you as a traveler, you can offset. Uh, via something called offsetters, um, or uh, there's a there's a number of these plans whereby you offset your emissions. So what do you do? You 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 pay money to those plans, and they offset your emissions. So if you take a plane trip, let's say between Ontario and London, and I know you like yes. to, and I know you like to limit your air travel because of the carbon emissions, don't you? 
Isn't that something you? Well, you're, 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 you're cautious, though. I mean, you don't fly. You don't fly I, without thinking about it. Is that correct? I mean, you don't just fly. Well, willy-nilly. since we're on the, no, I don't fly willy nilly anyway. But um, I do fly for for business travel. Right. Um, and you're if you're on the offsetters plan, then then that that number of miles, or kilometers, gets calculated by them, and you offset it. I went on the website yesterday that I found on a link on your on your wonderful website, which people should oh, yeah. all go to margaretatwood.com, which has so much information. And I tried to calculate. I was on the airplane, strangely enough, while I was doing this in a, in an extra mm-hmm. legroom seat, which I know takes up more carbon. Yeah. I found. I said to Glenn, "We are, according to Margaret, we're taking up more carbon here in these uh, having our legs stretched out." But you can buy certain passes, which I couldn't quite get far enough into it to figure out that that then you have to calculate how many miles you fly and they will then put back into the carbon zone what you've taken out oh uh, the the other way around they take out what you've put in right oh what you okay yeah so they're removing they're removing carbon um to the equivalent of what you have um caused to be emitted what would people have to do However, to equalize what are the it? That really, huh? How many people what would have to? How many people would have to do this okay. to equalize it? Okay, so I don't think it's going to be just one thing. Uh, I think it's going to be a number of things, and one of the things that we see coming towards us very quickly is Mr. Elon Musk's Tesla car. So Mr. Musk's Tesla car is an all-electric car. It emits zero doesn't emit anything right uh, so and you can charge that directly from solar and mr. musk also has the power wall which is a home battery where you can store up uh, solar that you've collected during the day and then run your stuff off it uh, when it's dark and you say to anybody if you could have these two things the electric car and the uh, battery storage thing and get off the grid with it and it was a comparable price, would you do it? What do you hear them say? What you usually hear them say, because I've been trying it out, is in a heartbeat. Sure. If it was a comparable price, if I could have it, yes. Because that's what people want, and and because it's what people want, uh, that's going to build out pretty quickly. I think that, do you think, I mean, people say it, and then when you see that, you know, people can drive a Prius, that, which is a, an affordable car for many people, but they opt to pick a big Mercedes or a big Lexus. No, we're not talking Prius. We're talking Mr. Tesla's supercar. No, I know. But, but people even, but I'm just saying now because the Tesla cars are, are very expensive. They're not really available to everybody. So, But the price will come down, Tracy. Right. Do you remember the cell phones when they first came on? They sure. were huge. They came in the carrying case. They had a big antenna. They were expensive, and everybody said, ha, 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 that will never work. The size of a shoebox, But look at it was. now. <laughs> right. Yes, but do exactly. You, but how do you think you fight people's urge for, and I'm just being the devil's advocate here, how do you Tra- think you Tracy, fight... Tracy, their urges will change. One hopes so. I know that you're working... I, I, mean, I see their urges... I see their urges changing before my very eyes. And remember, I was there when everybody had a coal furnace. Wow. And then along came this other thing. What was it? It was the oil furnace. How long did that take to switch over? Yeah. About 10 years. 
uh, I was there when everybody had a tape cassette. And yeah, I was there for that. From vinyl records, sure. yeah. And then along came the CD, and then came downloading and streaming. How long did it take for tape cassettes to disappear? Pretty quickly. Very, well, those were when very quick. CD-ROMs yeah, barely made an appearance. There. Remember that? They thought that was the future. They now all we have to do is find a way to make sure that the, that the people that are streaming music will find a way to get the songwriters paid, but you just I just slipped into my ASCAP yeah, you can't, hat. You always says that. We're into the destruction of the planet, and you want to talk about songwriting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, well, you just did something really wonderful in Oslo. The Future Library. Oh, yes, The Future Library. That was actually wonderful, but it wasn't my idea. But it you took part in it. A, I did. I was the first one to do it, and it was a uh, a project originated with an artist called Katie Patterson, 1T, and um, you can go to futurelibrary.no, and you can find the whole thing. And what is it? A, th- uh, a forest was planted in Norway of little trees that will grow for a hundred years. And every year of that hundred years, a different author will be asked to submit a manuscript to the future library in a box that nobody is able to read until the hundred years is up. When the hundred years is up, all of the boxes will be opened and enough trees will be cut from the forest that will have grown to make the paper to print the anthology of the future library. Oh, that's beautiful. So, isn't it wonderful? Oh, so that's all just that is beautiful. revealed, all that's revealed is the author's name and the title of the book. So I went to Norway uh, at the end of May, and we walked into the forest, and we saw all of the little trees that had blue ribbons on them, so we wouldn't step on them. And we podcasted from the, we actually pod stream, we web streamed, we live streamed from the forest the whole thing using Periscope. And uh, we handed over the box. I chose archival paper so it wouldn't all crumble away. And an archival box. And that is the first future library manuscript. And the rules are um, made of words. You can't put your photo album in. Made of words, any form, poem, memoir, uh, novel, nonfiction, anything you like. And the final rule is you can't tell. So I can't tell you what's in the box. I know I'm, I'm not going to ask you. And you will. And you will. <laughs> you will leave this planet and go to the great vacuum cleaner in the sky, not ever That's telling right. anyone what's in that box. Is that true? That's right. Yes, it's true. How does it feel um, to have a so, secret like that, Margaret? Oh, I love that because I think children are divided into two classes. Number one, those who never buried things in jars in the backyard. And number two, those who did bury things in jars in the backyard on the supposition that somebody would come along and dig it up one day. Were you a barrier? I was a barrier. So what For sure, an, and I was also a digger-upper. I love finding unexpected things if I'm digging. So what an honor that you were the first person chosen for this future library. It, it was an honor. I, I, I don't think, I think when they started it, they thought it would be a little small project. Um, but it got worldwide attention. People are fascinated with it, I think possibly because it is so hopeful. So what you're saying with that gesture is there will be people In 100 years, there will be libraries, there will be books, people will still be reading them, uh, and there will be trees that will have grown. So it's all pretty hopeful. 
And every now and then the universe jumps forward and helps by, for example, all of a sudden fracking is no longer, it, it's, it's, you know, it's costing too much, to, so they're backing away from fracking. So the, the economics of a situation every now and then leads towards something that is ecologically sound. So maybe the universe is every helping Every once a bit. in a while it does. Yeah. Maybe it is helping a bit. You bet. I think that... Uh, I, I think I think people are starting to know what they want, and because we're so endlessly inventive, I think smart minds are jumping in to make it so. I think people are getting legitimately frightened too, of of what's happening to the earth. I do think that that. Well, what what you know what drives us is a combination of fear and desire. So, so you're right. The fear is we're all going to burn up. Uh, or choke to death, and the desire is let's have things that that still enable us to live in in ways that we enjoy, but that won't have that effect. You have your bird sanctuary. You're a big part of too. Don't that's a big thing for you. Right? Uh, well, birds are birds are symptoms of of everything on the planet. Uh, when the birds are in trouble, you can pretty much bet that other things are tr- in trouble too. So it's not just a bird sanctuary, it's a bird organization called BirdLife International, and the American partner in that is the Audubon Society. Um, but there are several wonderful uh, conservation organizations in the United States. The American Bird Conservatory is another one. Um, the Sierra Club has been active for a very long time, as you know. And everywhere you look, there are ones that are that are more local or less local, um, there are a lot of them, so there are a lot of people involved in this. And what do you do, what, what do you do with them? With uh, BirdLife International, which has 120 member partners, uh, Graham Ginson and I are the honorary presidents of something called the Rare Bird Society, which is um, which is concerned with um, helping projects in other countries that might not be able to afford it themselves, getting the money together to run the uh, the hub, which is in Cambridge, England, uh, that kind of thing. And what's happening to our birds? Because a lot of people don't know, and I don't know everything that's wrong with our birds. What what What, what is happening to our birds right now? Okay, it's migratory birds and shorebirds are in, are in trouble because of habitat destruction and the two big killers, which are... Um, feral cats and um, big tall towers with glass windows that light up at night. So those are killing billions of birds every year. I've got to tell you, Margaret, I, uh, New York for me has become, and, and, and I've become, and, and I'm asking this, you know, A, for our listeners, because not everyone knows, and, and B, for myself, because for selfish reasons, because, well, you know, we live in New York, and all around where we live, which is we live on on Central Park, they're putting up yes. one hundred story tower after another, and actually one we're going to move because one a hundred and twenty story glass tower is going up literally next door to our apartment building, blocking out the sun, blocking yeah. out the sun, and then there's another one three blocks away, and within that very small small area overlooking Central Park, and in, in the mid fifties, it's becoming one hundred story tower after another. And I fear that that park and those birds and that vegetation is just going to go. It's it's the scariest thing to be living in in, in sort of watching this almost 
you know, it's like a science fiction to me to see what's happening to New York City and these towers going up and the city just becoming one endless skyline. And what well, is never you mind, dear, because when the sea level rises, they'll all fall down. But when's that going to be? Because I would like to enjoy the sea. <laughs> that I mean, that, I that like actually happens. Right. That happens right <laughs> after the Yosemite, that huge, huge. Oh, I love the ice cone. You, when it blows up and and California oh, no. drops into the ocean, and it, there's a lot to worry about <laughs> once you get started. No, but I do worry <laughs> about those birds, Margaret. I worry. Today. I worry about the birds, and I worry about the trees, and I worry about what's. You know, when you just talked about the towers, I mean, the sky is disappearing in that sense for for people and well, for animals. Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Yeah. Wait and wait and see, or I should say, you're going to find out. I might. Well, not. I'm going to I'm going to Margaret, start helping the birds. Is there some if as a, as a parting thought, if if there was somebody you would like us to direct people to to you know to uh, to learn and perhaps to contribute and to to uh, to uh, to uh, help the health of a of, of a favorite organization, what what would you probably want us to to uh, okay to mention? with 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 birds, you should do either the Audubon Society or the American Bird Conservancy. They both do excellent work. Excellent. Hear that, listeners? You all go do that because you're not going to have any bird life left. And what else, Margaret? Oh, okay. So for the five things for the environment, but I'd love to end. I would love to end okay. with you telling because you really you, you do this so well, and and I know it's so so close to your heart. If you can tell people out there who are listening who may not know, and, and I'm, I think I know some things, and I was, until I started reading a lot of things about you this week, I, in terms of your environmental impact, I was completely overwhelmed by what I don't know and what I don't do. So what are five things that people who do care okay. can do to make it better you for the future and the present? Plant a, plant a pollinator garden. If you have a little garden or any sort of uh, green space, a uh, okay. if you look up pollinator, P-O-L-L-I-N-A-T-O-R, okay. uh, plant plant milkweed to save the milkweed butterfly. Uh, there are several organizations dedicated to that. So if you put in save monarchs, you'll find those. Save monarchs. I, uh, monarchs, M-O-N-A-R-C-H. Yes. Monarch butterflies. Monarch butterflies, you can actually be part of people who are creating a a sort of river uh, of milkweed for the monarchs. And it turns out that milkweed makes a super, super oil spill sucker upper. Wow. Oh, really? Made from milkweed. Okay. Yeah, so if you put uh, milkweed oil spill, you'll find the company that makes that. Uh, I think we should all be uh, helping out organizations and products that have positive effects. So the other thing you can do, and this would be crucial for the United States, there's a very, very useful plant that doesn't take a lot of herbicides, pesticides, or water, which hasn't been grown in the United States for a while, but the Declaration was of Independence was written on paper made from it, and that would be industrial hemp. Hemp, Not the kind course. you smoke. Hemp, H-E-M-P. Not the kind Not you the drink. Kind you not the kind I'm in recovery from. She's here. talking about something else. <laughs> not the kind you, not the kind you smoke. I've never heard of anybody drinking hemp, but who knows? Um, so you can make many, many useful things out of it, and the seeds of it are extremely nutritious. And this is not hallucinogenic in any way. So industrial hemp. 
Oregon, I think, and Washington State are already doing the other kind, but uh, <laughs> for marginal land that's quite dry. Uh, Not the kind you take to Vegas. What, what about Not the, the bee, uh, Margaret, what about the bees? Uh, you know, the, the bee, dis, bee okay, population the is in such trouble. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. Uh, well, there's there's a huge amount of stuff devoted to that on the on on websites, and probably one of the most useful things you could do is is sign uh, one of those international petitions. So there's an organization, an organization called A A V A Z. Sorry, Z A V A A A V A Z, and it's got a B petition on it. Wonderful. So I would say, add your voice. Add your voice. Do some pollinator helpful planting. Uh, help with the milkweed. Um, c- donate to the American Bird Conservancy or or the Audubon Society. And um, let me see. What can we do for? And fish? what about okay. at home? Re- what about at home? Just like in our in our houses, because people in your in your house. Well, gosh, there's so many. Because uh, people think if they just recycle yeah. and turn the lights off, they're doing their bit. Um, if that's all they can do, I'm all for it. Do that. But I would say keep, keep, your, keep your eye on Mr. Tesla and his products and similar products because that's where it's going. Wonderful. Well, it's going uh, to off-the-grid direct solar. Well, you give so much, Margaret, through your work, which is just endless, through your through your devotion to this planet and... And your life online, almost 900,000 Twitter followers, had, had, you keep your sanity somehow and your sense of quiet while you have this really active Internet life. It's extraordinary. Some of them are robots, Tracy. Well, I know, you're, I know you believe in robots. I know you do. I know you. No, they really are. They're, they're, they're Internet bots that sort of send you messages automatically. Yeah, no, I know. I do know that. I do know that, but I I don't (laughs) use those guys. And then the other thing people can do: go out and buy the Heart Goes Last, the latest book by the ridiculously talented, very committed to our planet, good soul Margaret Atwood. Margaret, you are such a good person. You really are. And I mean, I mean, and I don't mean that in a kind of sucky, happy way. Don't raise the bar, Tracy. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, you really are. Your 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 commitment to to what is right and what is good is, is is something that's exemplary and. Another gift in the form of the heart goes last in stores today, everywhere. Buy it online. A pleasure to have you in my ears, Margaret, and and I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. We we loved it. And everyone who's listening, you go out there and do those five things. Because, you know, it's the planet where we live, and it's the only one we've got at the moment. Unless... Margaret's right, and, and we might go to another one. But until unless, until that time, we got <laughs> we got to take. Well, you know, you, if we go to another planet, Margaret, you know. You, when did I say we were going to another? Well, you planet? didn't, but Never. you said. Well, you didn't say we would, but you know, you said that that's what you know, space like space travel, and that's what you know, another universe is. So you know, if we did, no, no that's what I said. I, that's what I. You said don't I write, write about it. No, you don't write about it. But it doesn't <laughs> no. mean you wouldn't maybe do it. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't Promise. really. You wouldn't go to Mars. No, okay, so it was you who said the great vacuum cleaner in the sky. I did, I think, you're right, I, think, right. I, think, <laughs> I think it's likely to make that kind of space travel. Okay, we'll do that. But no, take care of this planet, because it is the only one we've got, and, and none of us are going anywhere else, so it, it's very important. It's many, very many important. thanks. Thank you, Tracy. Okay, take care. Okay, thank bye-bye. you. Okay, bye-bye. Blessings. You give a little love, and it all comes back to you. You know you're gonna be remembered for the things 
that you say and do. You give. 